0: Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series. And on the Dr. Gundry Podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid, to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you being here and supporting the people that sport, keeping the wind in the sail the coral of the Corolla Pirateship. We do appreciate it, so we can keep doing this thing. Uh, again, do check out After Dark, and don't forget, uh, we've got a lot going on over at drdrew.com right now in terms of these streaming shows um, and uh, just all kinds of crazy stuff. We're getting into TikTok now, and if you have questions there, I try to answer them. And again, the voice messages at After Darker places you can send stuff that uh, we get into it. We appreciate it. We appreciate you being here. Again, support the people that support us. And today, uh, it is Dr. Anadelle Barber. Uh, her book is Sex and Sobriety, a Qualitative Narrative, Exploration of the Utilization of Mindfulness Practices for Enjoyable Sober Sex, available on Amazon. Uh, Annadel, A-N-A-D-E-L, Barber, B-A-R-B-O-U-R.com is her website. You can follow her on Twitter at Anna, A N A S C H M A N A, Anna Shamana. Uh, Dr. Barbara, welcome. Thank you. Anna Thank you for having me, my, Dr. Drew. Anna Shamana. I've had that
1: one so long <laughs> that I never got rid of it. You know, when email first came out.
0: like <laughs> I, I, I completely get it. I mean, I've got some arbitrary numbers after my name that the person who sent up my email, which I didn't understand really what email was, I said, all right, whatever all right. number, I, it's been my email address for God. Fifteen yeah. years, something like that. You don't moment. want
1: to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Well. Yeah. Well. But but the really scary part is for me that seems like five minutes ago. So that's the part I don't want to talk right. about. So right. um, let's. I I want to talk about EMDR, but let's talk about okay. your about your book first. Just what what is it that people okay. would go to the book for, and what is in the book?
1: Well, the book um, was really came out of my dissertation, and it's about how drugs affect the body and mind and when people give them up and want to have sex, they're very disconnected. And so there's mindfulness practices. It's not just meditation. It's getting to know the body, getting to know, you know, your own fears and being able to face them. And with mindful practices, you can connect with your body, but you can also learn how to comfortably Connect with someone
0: else, so that's what it is. So, so to me, that seems like the residual of trauma, uh, particularly in the post-sober state, in the particular early sobriety, when people are trying to manage affect again for the first time in a long time. And I, I've noticed that you know often in many of these trauma survivors that seek substances for the solution to their stuff there is some degree of somatoform dissociation, like they're disconnected from the body or the body is a source of, um, you know, uh, uh, chaotic kinds of stimuli that they can't make sense of because they've been so disconnected for so long. Does this mindfulness connect to that as well?
1: Uh, Yes. And, um, you know, mindfulness has been around longer than EMDR. so EMDR And mindfulness go well together because it directly affects the brain. But using mindfulness practices can calm the nervous system. And so trauma stays in the body and people really aren't aware when they put the substances down, their mind has to clear up a little bit. So they have to get to know that as well and and get to know the thoughts and the processes. And then they start feeling things in their body. But sometimes it takes a long time. And that's why, you know, it's just a practice because they've been
0: disconnected for so long. So I, I want to say that again because – and this reminds me of Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, because the, the body is where the trauma uh-huh. is sort of embedded and stays. But you're, you're saying that the they may not be able to fully – oh, did I lose her? Oh, there you are. Something changed on my screen here. Um, <laughs> but, but we may not be able to fully heal that disconnect, but mindfulness practices can start to make things work better for you particularly in the setting of intimate contact, right?
1: Yes. And it's really about learning to love everything about you, even the things that you thought were not good about you, even the things you dislike about yourself. Maybe they're not so bad. And so it's about getting a new relationship with your body and your mind. And if you can do these practices, the dissociation minimizes
0: Really? And, and so much of that is shame-based. Where, where what happens with the shame? Does it dissipate? Does it get understood, insight? Where, where does it go?
1: Um, shame, you know, um, uh, it's funny. Uh, Tara Brock talks about um, radical self-acceptance and that we have shame on top of shame. And so it's a really deep, deep thing, especially in America. She talks about when the Dalai Lama came to America in particular, We walk around with a lot of shame because we have a lot of expectations in the West, but particularly America about, you know, staying young, being successful, all that stuff. So we walk around with this striving to be perfect. And that striving to be perfect then causes us shame because we're not perfect. So we're shameful because we're not perfect. And then we beat ourselves up for not being able to feel good
0: about ourselves. So it's, it's these layers of shame. So, right. I've so what happens? Go ahead. Yeah, go
1: ahead.
0: Well, I was just saying my, my experience of perfectionism is an attempt to manage shame. You know what I mean? Like I feel bad about myself. Therefore yes. I'm going to be perfect. Uh, and to some yes. degree or another, that's a, you know, you can do that, but it's an eternal quest. It's, it's a Holy grail.
1: Right. Right. And so again, it's a lot of layers and it's the conversation we could probably have for hours and hours or days or days, but it's about accepting those fears and those shames. Because what happens when we accept those things that we're trying to make different, right? Getting rid of the shame by being perfect stuff. We are tensing up our nervous system. We are blocking any ease And so when we say hello to Shane and just say, hi, I know you're here, all of a sudden we can breathe. And then we can say, you know, I know you're here for a reason, Shane. And so what can I do for you? And the ease in our mind, because, you know, we can heal ourselves. It just takes practice. The easing of our minds and accepting these things, that we've been trying to hide for so long with drugs and alcohol or with perfectionism and all that stuff, it becomes a friend and it becomes a thing that we can actually get a softer relationship with. And all of a sudden it's not shame anymore. It's just a little bit of discomfort.
0: I I personally have never seen anybody do that without another person standing by. You know what I mean? Uh, acceptance by the other first and then acceptance by the self. Am I, does that just been my no. experience or, or, or do I, have I not <laughs> been around enough people that, that really practice this properly or what, 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 what? It's not
1: about practicing properly. I think we need both. I think we need both. And that's why there are therapists, that's why there are meditation teachers and yoga teachers. Humans need the connection. Yeah. But, you know, when you think about, Let's just use therapy as an example. In therapy, you see the therapist one hour in a whole week. What are you going to do between sessions? And that's what we're talking about. It's about what are you learning and how can I apply it? And so a lot of people are afraid of these mindfulness practices because they think I can't sit and meditate for 30 minutes. Oh, my God, I'll never be able to do it. But it's really about building that muscle the same way as if you would be going to a gym. Start with 30 seconds and just breathe and say one nice thing to your body and then move to a minute and say two nice things to your body. Right. So it's these little increments that build up to a new understanding and relationship with yourself
0: my experience of therapy though was – and, and I hope to offer that to other patients too is in terms of what we do when we move away from the therapist is I kept the piece of her with me. I had an internalized mm-hmm. thing that, that helped me then do the, th- the practices and whatever I wanted to do. But I couldn't have done it without the other person which also raises to me the other issue that another way of achieving something very similar is through spiritual practice. So I'm wondering if a spiritual practice can- enters into this as well.
1: Absolutely. And so it, it, it's up to the client. It's up to each individual really to, to have their own either higher power or connection to the universe or connection to nature or whatever it might be. But, um, that is actually what we have when we're alone. You know, in 12 step programs, they talk about deep within us, we know where it is and all that right and wrong, right? In, you know, churches, there's God in Buddhism it's about tapping into your own heart-mind connection. Um and so that is other if you want to call it that. It is other.
0: Now, you know, you mentioned heart-mind. I I, I feel like although you're right, Buddhism has known about that for a long time, I feel like western clinical practices are sort of getting to understand that a little better both explicitly in terms of the biology of the polyvagal theory and all this stuff that Dr. Porges has given us also in terms of Alan Shore and all of his right-brained embedded bodily-based kinds of experiences that that it's not the heart is not a metaphor it's actually a real neurological right. place that we have to pay very close attention to
1: yes yes absolutely you know the the heart and the mind the brain and the heart you know they are organs but it's that intangible that we know but i think is we but,
0: but i think we've treated it as a metaphor in the west you know what i mean like oh my heart's not in it we we just talk about it. we toss it off as a metaphor but but all the autonomic nervous system material that lies over our chest over our stomach over our pelvis those are little brains uh, in our body and we don't really know how they work but but we know they're important
1: Yes, we do. And so, and that's the fascinating thing. That's the wonderful thing about now and EMDR being around for so long, mindfulness being around for even longer, but it becoming part of society. Yeah. You know, it, it helps people learn, you know, that there's more to us than just, you know, this pandemic has brought on the existential why am I here?
0: Are you getting a lot of that in the rooms? Oh,
1: absolutely. Why absolutely.
0: am I here? Interesting. And what, and what are people, are they coming to certain understandings that way? I mean, what, what are they kind of, are they answering uh, themselves in a meaningful way or a common way?
1: Um, well, I wouldn't say common. Um, everything's common and it's not really, I guess, because that's how we can, you know, survive in a society. But it's interesting. Um, you know, especially I guess in Los Angeles because that's my where I live. A lot of people's identity get on this train, and they are identified by what they do, who they know, and what they make. And all of a sudden, that disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so that's when the question happened. And it's not going to disappear forever, right? You know, <laughs> but but people don't know that, and you know. We, we go about our lives mindlessly, you know, with intention, but we haven't really paid attention to what happens if this all goes away. I, and I, so now there's a little more awareness of that.
0: Yeah, I've been saying that COVID took my life away, just completely took it away, completely. And I'm sort of pleased mm-hmm. that I found creative solutions. And it really is about being creative with yourself and your priorities and your heart.
1: Yes, yes. And a lot of people just need a little help finding what that is. And, you know, all of a sudden their relationships became different. And so I've had a lot of people come in going, I can't communicate with my husband. And so we'll, we'll ease their fears, calm their nervous system, and then they're able to do that. As
0: an example. And, and two more things I want to hearken back to before we get into EMDR more explicitly, mm-hmm. which is the, the heart-mind notion. You, you, you're right that I think, again, mental health professionals have come to terms with it. I don't think the public, I don't think we've made it culturally explicit yet enough. It still sounds a romantic metaphor that's in literature, not something that's part of science. And we really have to work hard at getting people to understand. I you know, Van der Kolk has done a lot in terms of the bodily-based expression of trauma, but I think we need to get more and more and more explicit about really the heart because uh, we we we've just sort of sidelined it in this country as as some sort of romantic metaphor. And and although we're understanding it more as a biological entity, I really don't think the public has sort of really caught on to what we're all talking about here.
1: Yeah, I don't think by and large it has. Um, And yet we're always seeking it, you know, in literature, in art, in music, and we get twinges of that. I think we're just not realizing that that's what it is. Well, there's we, emotion, we, we, we
0: feel a, it, we feel it, but we locate it, we feel it in our chest, but we locate it in our brain. <laughs> Strangely enough, we just go, oh, that's a feeling. That's a feeling, and feelings are in my brain, as opposed to feelings are generated from my body. And uh, particularly, the heart feelings are quite important uh, and quite um, uh, motivating in various ways. And um, I, don't know, I don't know. We got to get more more on top of that, it seems to me. The other, the other thing we were talking early on about the somatic disconnect, the other thing that my opiate patients uh, are stuck with, frankly, biologically, is some of that same b- flatline-y stuff uh, in terms of their emotions, in terms of their relationships, in terms of their uh, sexual satisfaction. Some of that is that they've never loved anything as much as they've loved the drug that's uh, that's just a fact that's just what they love more than anything in the world and some of it is the residual effect of the drug where their reward system not even the reward system it's really the anterior cingulate which is sort of their nurturing mommy system is sort of bl- burned out and down regulated and so they can't feel things like closeness and satisfaction. That's why they end up doing autoerotic asphyxiation when they're sexually involved, things like that. They're trying to heighten that sense of connectedness. Some of that may be just them looking for a high again, right? They're always looking for a high. But some of it is legitimate that they just have a flatline biology if they've used opiates long enough. What do we do with them?
1: Um, the same that we do with anybody. It's just some, what I tell people is, so it's going to take a long time.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, when, when clients are, are horribly dissociated. I mean, I'm thinking of one in particular. Um, what I would do is check in every time we met each other. What are you, what, what are you thinking? What are you feeling in your body? What emotions are coming up? And let's just sit with that. And then I would ask again, what are you thinking? What emotions are coming up within your body? And make try and make the brain, and that was with slow bilateral stimulation. Um, you know, connect. And after about two months, there was some a, a report that oh my god, I I cried last night for mm-hmm. the first time in a long mm-hmm. time. Right. So it was some it just takes longer.
0: That that that, for some people. that um apraxia with feelings. Are, is so common now that disconnected from primary emotional states. I don't even call it dissociation anymore because I just, I just, because to me, dissociation has a more, uh, it, it's the body, it, well, this is just my experience. I think of it more as the, the body being more a source of scary, disorganized information. While when people are just not connected to primary emotions, they didn't get that attunement from mom, they had no rapprochement and blah blah blah. They just didn't get what they needed. They were abandoned, what neglected, or you know, whatever. Um feelings are not dangerous, they're just vague. They're just way out in there somewhere I can't quite identify them, and so you gotta bring them into the into the mix, so to speak. Still the same thing, I guess, right? Yeah,
1: yeah it is. And the brain can heal itself again. it just takes a while
0: perhaps you 're surprised to learn that health insurance doesn 't cover full cost of an emergency medical flight, even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with deductibles and copays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year, covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That's just pennies a day. My goodness, we all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Remember, it's only $85 to begin with. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Use offer code Drew. Marie wasn't getting enough sleep. Every night she struggled with poor sleep, restless legs, but then she made a small change, and one month later everything was better, all because she started taking Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers, the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. Marie left a five-star rating saying, I'd give this 100 stars if I could. Within one month of use, I went from daily struggles with restless legs, constipation, poor sleep, to no struggles with any of that. I know it sounds dramatic and far-fetched, but it is true. And Marie is not the only one getting better sleep after taking Magnesium Breakthrough. Amanda says, quote, I fall asleep much faster and stay asleep now until normal waking hours. You have a customer for life. And Bill says, quote, on the first night of taking Magnesium Breakthrough, my deep sleep jumped up to two hours, which has been the highest reading so far from my Oura ring. Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can do is start by getting enough Magnesium. It's simple. But please do not run to the store to buy the first Magnesium supplement you find. Most Magnesium supplements use only two of the cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they may not fix your Magnesium deficiency or then may not help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I'm suggesting Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed how much better you sleep. Magnesium is known to help sleep and how much more rested you'll feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use code DrDrew10 during checkout to save 10%. That is magbreakthrough.com slash DREW and use the code D-R-D-R-E-W, Drew 10 at checkout to save 10%. I, st- I still feel so firmly, though, that, that healing itself is a little bit optimistic. I, I feel like we gotta, the, that that presence of the other is the basic system of regulation, right? It's how we build regulations with another, and it also gets us outside of ourselves to be able to tolerate looking at ourselves, a so-called new pair of glasses, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think we, we might be saying the same thing, and we're just having different language about it, because I don't think we're an island. Um, even, you know, existential <laughs> um Uh, existential psychology is about we have anxiety. How do others see us? That will ease our anxiety, right? right? Existentialism is I'm a rock, but again, it's still a connection.
0: Yes. It's funny. I I was talking to my son this morning who's getting a graduate degree in psychology, and he was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I did this because I thought – you could just listen to different ideas and different ways of thinking, and I could think my way out of whatever I was engaged with. And it's like, no, yes, thinking is important, but that was not even a big part of the story for him. And when he left the thinking behind and started looking at the emotions like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. right. And his just the, <laughs> the, the scales fell from his eyes, not just for insight into his own stuff, but the world at large, which which yeah. brings up an interesting thing for me. Which is – I've seen this – I saw the narcissistic turn happen, right? I I literally saw it Mm -hmm. in paperwork. I used to work at Los Encinas and for 30 years I was there and so I was there in 1984. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe I started in 85. In in 85, uh, the diagnostic sheets at the front of the chart would always include a a personality diagnosis back then and they were – Across the DSM at that time, three, they were all you know cluster C, cluster A, cluster B. They were all over the place. There were a lot of OCD, a lot of dependent stuff, was all all kinds of things. And then by about 1988, like literally three years later, I noticed uh, all I saw was borderline, narcissist, sociopath. Uh, That was it. That or maybe oppositional defiant, or maybe some of that stuff. But but that was and then into the 90s, that was truly it. That was it on everyone's diagnostic uh, sheets. And so I knew that was happening, and I watched it happen, and I was aware of it, and it sort of, you know, and I, my sense was it was as much as anything maybe related to all the childhood trauma that we were sort of inflicting on kids during the seventies and eighties. When, you know, hey man, whatever you're into, don't worry about those kids; they're just little adults. They raise themselves, and by the way, they're sexual beings. So if they're, you know, if they're, if if you're feeling aroused, well, that's that kid. That's that kid doing that. I mean literally it was like – listen to the songs from the 70s. Adam and I do that all the time. You can't believe the lyrics. Um, but but anyway, so it happened. And, and now I feel like we've moved into – I don't know how else to characterize it but histrionic. Like we're all in a, in a hysterical spin that borders on delusion all the time. Are, are you? Is that a proper construct? Do you agree with me? Do you see it differently? I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Uh oh, somebody's quacking. I had to check.
1: Yes, that's that's a phone call from my mother. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: um.
1: So, I uh, do. I, am I finding more histrionic?
0: Well, d- I, 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 history. Do you agree that histrionic traits have sort of ruled the day for the last couple of years, particularly? Uh, and, and I don't know if people are... I think are- so. I th- Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, social media has done a lot of that. Um, you know, constant visage, constant what we look like, what are people thinking. Um, and then our attention spans are getting kind of shorter. Um, uh, our interests are flowing in front of us really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what am I going to stop on? Yeah. And so I think the brain... Uh, it's changing as far as categorization and, and perhaps the human aspect um, is not congruent with it yeah. yet. I mean, it's, you know, evolution, who knows what's going to happen, but, yeah. but yes, I do agree with you. There is a lot more, this spinny loopy thoughts and not yeah. knowing <laughs> yeah. you know, how to stop it.
0: Yeah. The, spin, yeah. <laughs> the, the delusional. And, and I would say, and I, what I noticed about a year ago is I was thinking, God, if some of these people came to my office and, started sharing with me their observations of fascists and Hitler and blah, blah, blah. I go, we need to go in the hospital. We need to – del- right. this is delusional. It's frankly del- – I mean it's a common delusion since World War II, which is I see fascists everywhere. I see Nazis. I see Hitler. Everything compares to Hitler. That That's delusional thinking. Now, it, may be, it may not be a frank delusion in the sense that people have a clinical problem. But, hey, man, 10 years ago, I would have seen that thinking as really problem- really delusional, really concerning. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's 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 super fascinating what's happening. So let's talk about solutions. Um, let me let me uh, before we do, I have more questions. You have a PhD in human sexuality, and I'm wondering if uh, well, there's all kinds of changes going on, particularly in the adolescent and young adult group, because of porn, because of online stuff. Uh, I'm wondering what you're seeing uh, as sort of the general trends in human sexuality and what what's changing in the in the near term. Um too broad a question, you know, unfair. I,
1: it's, a, it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty broad question. Um it's interesting because obviously pornography has a different value than it used to. Because it's easier to get. Um and and also the our i, I icons of beauty are much more made up and pushed up. Um Than they used to be, I mean, you know, the Kardashians have made an industry of it, but, but that is much different looking, you know, than our other, you know, even in the eighties, we had, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer and Julia Roberts. (laughs) So it was a much different, different look. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And so. Well, this, well, I tell you what, this
0: one is more stimulating visually. That's it. It's more extreme. It's more, you know, it triggers the reward systems. That's what it's going yeah. after.
1: It's like candy. It's yeah. like sugar. It's like alcohol. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. And anyway, so it is It is easier to get to. Um, and so I'm not sure. I think women, a lot of women are feeling like they're not attractive enough. Mm. That's what I'm getting in couples counseling. And when women come and their, their sex life is... Waning with their husbands because it's easier for their husbands to just sit online and have their fantasy, and this is getting much more common. Yeah, much more common.
0: Yeah, well, it's happening. So that
1: that would be the big.
0: It's happening in adolescence and young adults too. I and I, I've been saying for decade and a half that it's. It's why they're not sort of dating and socializing and building that skill because they're just mm, they're over here with this stuff and that that's enough and and they're also scared. I I don't know if you've seen this because my kids were in college. I was around college age kids for a while, and uh, they were scared of the Me Too. They were scared of being seen as they would never speak to somebody with a beer in their hand. They would or having used alcohol. They would they would ne- they were just scared of being seen as some sort of predation if they were just interested in somebody. So you have. I'm over here safe with my porn and I'm scared of, of the real world. So off we go.
1: Well, yes, there is that mixed message culture that we have here too. Um, you know, this, you have to look at this, look at me, look at me, and then don't look at me because me too, I'm going to get you. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so it's very confusing for the adolescent brain. Yeah. It's still developing.
0: Yeah. Oh, pfft. The adult brain, too, has trouble dealing with it. Yeah. The adolescents are just – I mean it's a terrible to ask them. And then, and then now we've oh, added yeah. – I feel like we've added social phobia on top of that whole alchemy in the sense that we've now said isolate, stay in place, go to your room, huh? nuclear, nuclear yes. explosion. And, oh, by the way, if you talk to somebody, you're going to kill your grandmother. Oh, now, now what? Now what, everybody? What have we done? Uh, and these are kids that need to develop those skills of interaction and socializing. And then we're, we're not only preventing it, we're telling them that they try it, they're going to kill their family. Oh, my God. What in the – Well,
1: we had a very extreme year Yes,
0: <laughs> Very extreme year. I think it was indeed. very
1: extreme. It was very extreme.
0: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking back at my own stuff, Gary, and what I was saying at the beginning of this. And I, I stand by it now. We should have listened to the CDC. We should have listened to Fauci. The, this business of the states going their own way and copying what was done in Wuhan, China, it was a horrific mistake. We'll have consequences for a decade to come. That's my position.
2: I I'm glad that you stand by it. I think you should have all along there were there was a lot of changes throughout it well it was unclear
0: this. now now it's easier to no, look no, back yeah, and go i
2: oh. agree hindsight being 2020 yeah. you were right at the beginning and there were moments where it looked like maybe maybe you weren't well i was wrong
0: about a few things yeah, i was yeah. wrong about a few things no, but it's impossible were, to get everything right in an unclear situation correct. like that, i don't so. mean you were right across yeah. the
2: board but no. i uh, i really wish that there had been more well, you know what's
0: you know why oh, it's on my mind. I was on Daily Blast Live. Sorry, Annadelle. this is just on my mind right now. i beg okay. your part. Yeah, that's uh, okay. It is, um, I was on Daily Blast Live yesterday, and I was talking about that whole Twitter storm I was dealing with the last couple of days. But they played the tape of me in February of 2019, going, "Well, the we got to stop listening to the press. We got we got to start listening to the CDC and Dr. Fauci. And everyone else needs to shut up. Just listen to the CDC. Do what they tell you. And we completely. We two months later, we were doing.
2: Oh, everything was, out, everything was out the window. Yeah. We, me, policy was being made by in our state, Gavin Newsom, yes. a, as opposed to uh. medical professionals. Uh, that video, by the way, Doctor Barber, if you haven't uh, if you haven't seen uh, Drew in February talking about COVID, you can just uh, Google in there, Doctor Drew, February COVID. And uh, oh, you, s- you saw it? Oh, I've shown that to thirty or forty people. Mm-hmm. You'll find a clip of Doctor yeah. Drew on a morning show out of Oregon. Maybe you
0: mean you're talking about the Daily Blast Live?
2: No, no, no. the The original clip from February that was Daily Blast Live. Oh, that was, was it? And okay. I was on
0: the table. I was there with yeah. everybody. Yeah, that was Daily Blast. Some that's that's Drew in, is, the, uh, in Colorado. Animated. Yeah, I was mortified. I was mortified at, and I realize now it was like that they were copying the, the Chinese Communist Party policy, which never made sense to me, and that they were going to cause a mental health disaster and, and a and a and an economic disaster. And they did. They did it. And here we are. Okay. They did it. Well done, everybody. So so, so mm-hmm. let's go back. Let's go on now to the EMDR, which is what I want to get into for people because they have lots of questions about it. People are always asking about it. People don't know what it is. They don't know how to get it. They don't know what is in store for them if they do. Um, t- talk about uh, – let's just start really at the basics. Who should be getting EMDR? How do you know that you have somebody properly trained? And then let's talk about what it is. Ah,
1: huh. okay. EMDR um, – uh, is for really almost anyone that has maladaptively stored memories that are causing them distress. Now, it was originally—
0: I, 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 I know, I'm going I'm to interrupt you all along the way here, so I apologize. Do these have to be explicit memories, like screen memories, or there just can be like something, some feeling or something that's bothering them?
1: They, it can be a feeling. Yeah. Um, we are When EMDR started, Francine Shapiro is the therapist that created it. And it was in the late 80s, early 90s. And she was working with war veterans. And so she was doing trauma therapy for flashbacks for veterans that had PTSD. But she got diagnosed with cancer and then all of a sudden had her own trauma. And through a series of events, she calls it the famous Walk in the Park. And this is so truncated, I apologize. She was getting um, help from uh, a Buddhist mindfulness teacher. And part of her work was doing meditation, guided meditations, visualizations. And that's what a lot of cancer patients do. But she was doing a walking meditation one day. And when she finished her walk, she realized two things. Her eyes were moving back and forth. And she was no longer upset about her cancer. She knew it was there, but she didn't have the charge. And so she was working with other psychologists, and they started doing different types of bilateral stimulation, the eye movements, with the PTSD patients and flashbacks. And so bilateral stimulation is what the EM is of EMDR, it's eye movements. And that activates the triune brain in a way where it reprocesses these maladaptive memories so that The brain all of a sudden realizes that stuff happened, but it's not happening now. And so, cut to 30 years later, here we are. And EMDR helps with, you know, single incidents. It helps with sexual incest or a rape. It helps with an earthquake, you know, aftermath. And it helps with a car accident that you can't drive anymore. And it also helps with... You know, complex trauma in family. And so we have complex PTSD. And so we have people that are just walking in with, you know, free flowing anxiety and depression from, you know, bad well, attachment.
0: Right. R- right. And, and most people have trouble, most people don't know what we're talking about when you say bad attachment. And most people have trouble mm-hmm. identifying that they have problematic family systems because they're highly defended and they're justifying and they're identifying with the you know perpetrator oftentimes and blaming themselves and blah, 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 things that kids do normally, but they're doing it as adults. How do we uh-huh. increase awareness about that phenomenon? One of the struggles I've had is helping people understand that it's not their fault, that they're a product of intergenerational trauma, that these things are common, and how do we just sort of turn the heat down so they can look at themselves and maybe get some motivation to get get well?
1: You know, part of that is, um, you know, publicizing more about EMDR therapy mm. um, and, and types of, you know, other therapies, CBT and DBT, that that really help people understand that their circumstances brought them to where they are, right? It's not everyone else's fault per se, but from the moment they were born, their brain was developed, things went into their life and they had no control over it. (laughs) And so their brain then adapted the way it knew how to adapt. And by the time they get to adulthood, you know, we have to, Educate them. But I think the way to do that is these kind of things. Podcasts and such, because I don't know, you know, the problem is when you think about it, you know, the, the uh, drugs are advertised on TV all the time. Yeah. You know, restless leg and for depression and all that stuff. Um, therapists don't really advertise like that. And so I don't know. I guess the the profit margin is different. That's not, true. There's...
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and, and yet, and yet, we have an army of people now ready to do this work. And the biggest problem, yeah, yeah it's it's I have is finding people that are, I'll be honest, good, uh, and, mm-hmm. and and then motivating the people to get in there. Interestingly, one of the one of the side benefits of the pandemic has been that that the availability of zoom online mental health services has lowered the threshold I'm, I'm not super happy with what's going on online with the stuff but it's it's a start and it's getting people in in the in the into the process which i thought has been great and by the way i don't know how you feel but it surprised me how effective it was for as long as it was you know what i mean that, that it, it the zoom 12 steps and stuff I, I was really surprised
1: i'm very surprised i think people are adaptive and they don't even know it
0: yeah yeah
1: right. they really are they have more strength than they think they do, and I I really was really pleasantly surprised by the the um, platforms that came out for EMDR therapy. And so to to continue with your question about how do you find a good therapist, there is there is an uh, association called MDRIA, EMDRIA, E M D R I A, and you have to join, and you can only join once you've been trained. And so they kind of vet. Their EMDR therapist. Oh, that's good. Um, another another um, is you know word of mouth. You know you can go on. That's the only thing today. I got.
0: That's all I got. <laughs> that's, that's that's what I rely on, and I've always I do that though with all disciplines. So to be fair, and then what my assessment yeah. is after I've gotten in there. But but um, you know the the extraordinary thing about good therapy is the therapist has got to be. I'm going to try to choose a good word, proper instrument in, in that mm-hmm. he or she either needs to have been lucky enough to have secure attachments in childhood, which is pretty rare these days, or have really, really done their own work and cleared up their instrument so they can be a, a proper instrument. And mm-hmm. I, I'm shocked how rare that is. Shock, shock, <laughs> shock, shock, shock. I mean I, I, I did it myself. Because I felt like, oh, well, I need to clear some stuff up to be able to be effective for some of these patients. And, and I, I don't understand how you can work with people and not think about that or want to do that. Or So what's your thought on that?
1: Um, I, I do agree with you um, because I came from not very secure attachment and did a lot of work on myself. And part of the reason why many therapists go into the field is because they want to help people get through what they got through. Um, But I have found, you know, I have found because I help um, facilitate trainings for EMDR as well. Um, The therapist needs to have a higher threshold of tolerance than the client because we're hearing, I mean, extraordinary life events from people. And if we're going to fall apart while we're listening to them reprocess these extraordinary events, I don't think we're going to be very effective. It doesn't mean no empathy. It just means that there has to be a level of self-regulation and a window of tolerance that's it's, larger it's than why, the It's
0: why I'm so driven crazy by public health officials either being schizoid and cold and blah, 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 or oh God, I don't know. There's sick people out there. What are we going to do? That is, those are the two opposite of what the public needs at a time like the. Last year, but anyway, um, but the the yeah. the uh, ability to tolerate the trauma. Now, you mentioned that therapists go in to fix stuff that they you know didn't fix. Oftentimes, that that is expressed as a kind of a codependent thing, uh, and in fact, they are really trying to regulate their own pain, not the patients. And I see a lot of that. A lot of that. So, so there's a there's two versions of I need to help other people. One is I'm fully healed and I understand what that is and I have a good boundary and I'm able to tolerate and regulate with them. Versus I need their pain to stop, <laughs> which is the codependent right. mode. Uh, and uh, and one of the things I if, if your ter- therapist is talking a lot during therapy or telling you what to do. Mm, Mm, I'm not sure that's a good situation. I mean there are situations where you're going to tell give people advice and whatnot but but if that's the therapy is they're talking and telling you what to do, that's not therapy that's not therapy that's advice
1: I agree I agree with that
0: and so that oh, ability to be present and help you know i want to explore that a little more uh because that's really kind of a magical thing, right and as somebody who sits in relation to those moments, it's deeply um of course, it's moving, but it's also um, – well, it's spiritual, right? I mean, to me, that's spirituality in an interesting way. And, and, and it's also uh, a privilege. That's the word I'm looking for. The COVID has kept me from my vocabulary lately. Um, but it's a privilege to be able to sit there and hold that line. But you have to also be present and, and, and with the feelings. You can't not feel the feelings. You have to feel – help the patient feel felt in those moments that are wild. How does that, what's that experience like for you?
1: Well, you know, EMDR is an interesting type of therapy. So I'll just explain a, a session. There's eight phases to the EMDR therapy that I practice. And the first two phases can take a whole session or two. And that's the history, getting to know the client's strengths. And then introducing bilateral stimulation in a slow manner so that we can reinforce some mindfulness practices. And all that is to help the client be able to regulate their own emotions when they feel like they're going to get triggered. Right. Mm -hmm. And then phases three through seven or eight are all about the reprocessing. And once we start a reprocessing session, the focus isn't this is where it's trauma, trauma focused. We focus on an incident, but it's really attached to a negative belief that people have about themselves. That's a really strong point about EMDR because we're treating negative beliefs as well as memories, as well as what's in the body and as well as the emotions. Mm -hmm. And so we get a, a target, image but we also get a negative belief i'm not good enough i'm not safe i'm in danger i should have known better whatever that client is experiencing every time they get triggered right and so what we do is we 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 set up the target is what we call it and so we get the target the negative image we get a goal of a positive belief and we revisit that once the charge gets diminished. Mm-hmm. We scale these things. And this is why it's become a really um, great therapy because if you, this is what Francine Shapiro knew. If you can measure this thing, then it'll be legitimate. And so we scale the level of disturbance that the client is feeling when we start the reprocessing. And then we ask them what they're feeling in their body. So here we've activated the cognitive, the somatic, and the emotional part of the brain. And then we begin the bilateral stimulation quickly to reprocess. And so what a session looks like of reprocessing, it's stop and go. We do the bilateral and then I stop and say, what are you noticing? And it's anything they're noticing. And, and, and are you,
0: are you, is that, you know, that process of when to stop, is that something that you actually start feeling something yourself does that let you know? Cause I noticed that in therapy, when, when these, these walled off dissociated parts of self want attention, I feel it. I feel it somewhere in my body. Is, does that let you know they they need some, some stop?
1: Yes, but, but there's also a number. There's a number. So I will do, depending on the client, some clients like their eyes to go back and forth 25 times, some like 35 times. Um, And so it's really, I do 25 times and stop, 25 times and stop, and that can go on for 20 minutes. So what I'm doing, and so this is what we were talking about when we first started. I am noticing everything they're reporting to me whether it's a memory or an emotion or in their body, I've even had clients, we call them ab reactions in the EMDR. I don't know if that's used anywhere else. It's stored trauma. You know, I've had clients ball up in fetal positions and we still keep going Mm -hmm. because I've prepared them to know that they're going to go through this journey in their mind. And so by the end of The 20 minutes or so, I check in with them again on what their level of disturbance is. And when when it gets down to a really low number, we bring in the positive cognition to put into the body, to put attachment to that memory so that the positive can now be part of their thought processes. And then yeah. we ground them with those exercises I was talking about.
0: Still feel like the positive comes from you. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that people can autonomously store that without the other. That, it does
1: come from. Yeah. It, it, well, yeah. And yeah. again, we're talking about the same. They're not doing it alone. Right. They and, can't do it alone. And, they can't.
0: Right. And and they just won't. They won't, literally. The body brain will let you go. There well, you
1: they won't be able to bring themselves back.
0: Perhaps you were surprised to learn that health insurance doesn't necessarily cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with a substantial deductible and copay, or just the full expense. Protect your family, your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air med transport, air medical transport, is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as eighty-five dollars a year, covers your entire household every day, even when you are away from home. That is just pennies a day. My goodness. That, I mean, why not? We all know the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. And as I always say, it's only $85 a year to begin with. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash Drew and then use the offer code Drew. Well, and there's two. There's a couple things. There's two things that happen in my experience when people have these profound experiences: is they look at things differently. They're literally in like a different place. Like they're somewhere else now, examining the trauma or whatever it is. They've shifted. But part of that shift is a shift in the self, and that's what the brain fights against. It's actually a survival instinct that we fight against. And when that shift occurs, I've noticed people tend to feel grief. I'm wondering how, if you see much grief as the old self and the old sense of the trauma and the old sense of their position melts away and a new thing emerges. Do you see much grief reaction there?
1: Um, it's interesting you should ask that. I really don't see a lot of grief. And I think it's due to uh, the rapid healing uh, that the bilateral stimulation does. I'm not sure. I mean, because it it's... Within the window of time that we are reprocessing, a lot of things can come up. Yeah. A lot of things can come up. And so oftentimes when I check in with a client and say, when you think about the original image, what, you know, zero to 10, what is your level of disturbance? They're shocked when they say, you know, I'm not upset about that anymore at all. And so I haven't seen the grief factor. Now, between sessions, sometimes, you know, they come back and say, I felt a lot of sadness the second day.
0: Well, that's the that's the piece. I think, I, think, yes. I think Melanie Klein used to call that, I, I think what she was actually describing was when she described the depressive position. I think that's what she was talking about, because I see a lot of that, and uh, it's what the brain doesn't want to feel, and that's why we don't do that on yes. our own. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, Right, and, and so, but the, the beauty of teaching a client to be as empowered as they can is that they then go, well, what if I do this loving kindness intention to myself? And then they start doing these practices, and when they come back to me, they say, you know what, I was so sad for two days, but when it started to lift, I realized, I could take a walk and then appreciate my body or give myself some loving kindness or compassion. And so they've learned that. And they, a lot of them say, I hear your voice, right? So I'm with them.
2: Right. That, that does not <laughs> right? surprise me. That's See, that's a, I, I
0: was, Well, that's what I was talking about too. When I said this internalized thing you walk out in the world with. I really. I just can't. For me, the the other is such an important part of the story that even yes. mindfulness practice. I, yeah. I
1: hear all my teachers. I hear all my teachers. yeah, yeah,
0: always. Yeah, it's. I've very... been
1: sober a long time. I hear my sponsor's voice all the time.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. i i I personally believe that um, the self emerges in is in in an intersubjective context. Consciousness probably emerges out of intersubjectivity. We we don't. Um, I, again, things that we've been talking about—things we don't emphasize in our culture—we don't emphasize the 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 transcendent importance of this third thing between a self and another, which is relationship. This third phenomenon yes. that we create together is—you well,
1: you, know—what's a really common statement that people are saying these days: is the opposite of addiction is connection. But they're they're using it in you know kind of the literal context. And it's really this deep connection that we have with others, and a collective consciousness, and all
0: that. I have, I had an old aphorism. I used to repeat to my patients. I'd say, "Connect to other, connect to self. Connect to other, connect to self. You got to start connecting to us, and it'll help you connect to yourself. We'll help you." And um, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Well, listen, we have, yeah. uh, we have. Uh, uh, run the cycle here uh, this has been really fun I, I so appreciate the work you do uh, the book is Sex and Sobriety if you'd like to examine that book uh, the website check it out Annadel Barber A-N-A-D-E-L-B-A-R-B-O-U-R so it's com and uh, Anna Shemana on Twitter if you're interested in following on Twitter and uh, anything else Annadel before we kind of wrap things up?
1: Uh, I don't so i just hope that a lot of people hear about this and and you know turn to emdr if they need it and i i want to thank you for having me on the show it's been stimulating and lovely and you know we i I think one time when we emailed each other i said we were six degrees of separation and i actually worked with someone that used to work with you her name is alicia at um
0: do you remember Alicia? I do remember Alicia. I, I, there's, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know, I was out there for a long time, with thirty years of running a yeah. program. So there's a lot of folks that have scattered around since I worked with them. And please say hi for me. Yeah. And thank I you. I will. I'm with you
1: tomorrow. And thank
0: <laughs> you for thank you for the work you do. And and I just um you know, I feel like we can point at this podcast and go, hey, if you want to look at EMDR, just listen to the podcast, see." You know, particularly the last 30 minutes. If you have any questions about EMDR, here it is. And uh, people can now use this, yeah. I hope, as a resource, too.
1: Well, and as, you know, as we talked about trying to get the word out about this kind of stuff, the connection that we need, the heart-mind connection as something that's part of our zeitgeist. Not yes. Just, yes. you know, in a bubble.
0: Yes, yes. You know. and, and again, so. that EMDR website, EMD, <laughs> that, that that acronym? Oh,
1: dot EMDRIA.org.
0: So people can look for a therapist there yeah. as well. And Barbara, thank you yes, so much. Thank you guys. See you next thank time. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the and sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew podcast is a Corolla digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and in the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com